Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our new space. Move over here. It is uh, kind of cool, right? I, I don't know how to how to put it. I mean, um, home is us, right? And home is being together. And so, in one sense, I'm like really grateful to be in this new space and to look around and see that we can push all the way out to that wall if God so willed it in terms of our growth. But in another way, I'm just eager and excited to see all of you guys this morning. You are my church family, and I'm just grateful to see you guys, whether it's here or at St. James or at OPC or at Rainbow Park or whoever's basement or living room or wherever we find ourselves. Give me a second. You guys hear me? Yeah, you're good? Okay. And so this morning we're going to look at one of the last messages in our series in First Peter. And some of you guys have been here from the very start, while some of you have kind of just joined in or are just joining in now. And this morning we are going to discuss a familiar topic, which is the topic of suffering. You know, if you've been with us since the series in Matthew, this might be the third or fourth message you've heard on the topic of suffering. I think Peter himself has brought it up at least once, maybe twice already in his book, and he will come back again even one more time. And so if you've just joined us, then I'm glad you're here because I think some of the things this morning will be useful to you in your life. I know for me, it was uh, no matter how many times I study this subject or uh, end up having to preach on it or teach on it, it is still always refreshing to me and I always get something new on this subject. I think the thing that we hate the most about suffering, you know, apart from the actual grief and the pain that we go through in life, is the fact that suffering reveals our weaknesses. Who can relate to that? Just exposes you, right? And uh, all of the things that you think that uh, maybe you've uh, made huge progress in or the things in places in your life where you thought you've grown in, suddenly when you start to go through it, um, things come out of you that you didn't know were there, Right? Everything can be smooth until we go through a death in the family or through financial turmoil. And there's something about tough times that reveal the hidden person. Rarely do we like that, right? It's not, enjo- it's not enjoyable. It's not fun. And later we're going to get into God's design for why it's like that. But what suffering also brings around is our, our weaknesses and our um, the, the secret habits that we have or the things that are deep down in our heart. It's almost like blood in the water for Satan, who in this illustration would be a shark, right? You, you know, you, you're going through a hard time and you start to bleed. And as soon as the blood is in the water, that's when Satan is right there waiting for us, right? That's when he's right there. Satan often shows up in the midst of our suffering like a lion seeking someone to devour, which is the message that will come about in a couple weeks. And so church, we must never forget our enemy Satan, who is a deceiver, and he's a liar and a tempter. In our suffering, Satan is excellent at crafty and, and crafty and in tempting us by whispering lies into our ears. And in our sinfulness, we often enjoy those lies. We embrace those lies in some cases. We love to believe these lies because they agree with our selfishness and with our pride. I personally know these lies quite well because this week, 
while we were celebrating the birth of our sixth child, baby Silas. We also experienced, as many of you understand, some challenging times. You know, 34-plus hours of labor, sleepless nights. Our kids were almost all sick through that period. They were also really wired and excited. There was also a couple of sick parents in the house, weak parents. One of those parents experienced blood loss, and the other had a cold. And so we can debate which of those is more serious. In the midst of that weakness and exhaustion, though God had gifted us with something that thousands and thousands of people yearn for with all their hearts, I could still hear the enemy whispering in my ear in the midst of my exhaustion and in my frustration. I hear things like, you're a bad father. You have no self-control. You, you're messing up your kids. Who's heard those voices before? You're incredibly lazy. Imagine if your church family knew how bad you were at home. You're a weak and useless husband. You are a disqualified pastor. Who's heard those things? Who's felt those things? And in that time period, I entertained despair. I started to complain. I started to whine. I felt anxious and I felt sad and I buried my face in my phone. Who does that? Right? It's, it's a little bit um, common to us. But after a few days and some tough conversations, I realized that I had given Satan far too much of my ear and that I needed to turn to God in prayer. I confessed to God that I am indeed broken and sinful and weak, and that I do need God's mercy and grace, not only to survive, but to thrive as a, as a husband, as, as a dad, as a pastor. But slowly, the shame started to melt away, and warmth was restored in our home. And I thank God for many of you who I, knew were, who I know all week that you were praying for us, and so many of you who made meals for us and dropped it off at our house, and we're really grateful for that. With some reflection in God's grace, I saw that God had provided for us in so many ways. But then as I started to prepare this message, I realized something incredible. I noticed that in today's passage, Peter lays out five major truths that speak directly to the lies we tend to believe about suffering. And I realized that all week long, I had been entertaining those lies. I had heard all of them in some capacity, in some way, shape, or form. And I was just blown away by how God over the span of the week in preparing. And he does this often in my life. And anybody who has preached will tell you this. Mike, you'll know this, right? Like, you, you know, you're, you're preparing the message. And slowly through the week, he teaches you the message. It's not that he gives you this, like, crazy insight that just appears while you're sitting at your desk. Oftentimes, it's, uh, it's taught, right? Too loud? <laughs> Oftentimes it's taught to us, right? And sometimes it feels like the greatest lessons that we can teach, the greatest ones that we can pass on to you are the ones that we live ourselves. And so even though many of us can riff in great detail about what it means to suffer as a Christian, truly in the heat of battle, suffering reveals the lies that we gravitate towards when we are suffering. And so let's study the text and we can explore um, what these are. And the, mess, the name of the message, you can see there's five lies about suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Holy Ghost, we ask you this morning that you would fill our hearts and our minds and that you would teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so there's a lot of theological richness in these, what is it, verses 12 to 9. There's a lot of richness in here, and so I'm not going to do a theological deep dive into everything. There's just not enough time. But I want to address five lies that we believe while we're suffering, or at least that we're tempted to believe. Go to the next slide. Next one. Five lies about suffering. The first lie is that being a Christian's mean being a Christian means that we are exempt from suffering. Who's heard that before? Or at least some variation of that. You know, uh, for example, um, you only you know suffering is a result of uh, of your sin, right? You may hear that in the prosperity gospel movement. Second lie is that Christ's sufferings only refers to persecution. Who's heard that before? Right? Who's ever made to um, feel weaker or feel like their suffering is invalid because it's not persecution? The third lie is that everything is persecution. We know people who will cry wolf at every instance, right? The fourth lie is that suffering is futile and random. And the fifth lie is that I am of no use to God while I am suffering. These might not be lies that you would say that you readily believe, or maybe you've heard in these words, but they are lies that we live, right? We often, if I were to be honest about my choices, about your choices, if I know you well enough, sometimes we can betray what we believe by the decisions we make, right? Our choices prove that we do not believe. So let's go through, one, go through them one by one. Lie number one, being a Christian means we are exempt from suffering. Satan offer, often whispers this, one, this lie into our ear. You know, he says things like, if you were really a Christian, would you be going through this? Sometimes he convinces us that our suffering is punishment for sinning. Who's ever felt that? You're like, that's what I get, you know? You hear people say things like, that's karma, right? This type of lie is proliferated through the word of faith movement's prosperity gospel. But in verse 12, this is what Peter says. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I think most of us on face value would agree with this, right? I think like mentally, theologically, we would agree with that, right? Don't be surprised. Everyone suffers, right? We would all... There are not that many people in the world who would, who would look at this verse at face value and say, I disagree with that, 
right? Suffering is common. Whether, no matter what walk of life you come from, you would say suffering is something that people endure. Except when we are in the heat of battle, things start to shake out a little bit differently. I don't think there is much I have to say to convince you theologically that suffering is promised by Jesus. He says it literally in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. But I have a story to share with you guys about what this looks like in action. And in part, I think it is the basis for why Peter can say so confidently that we must not be surprised when suffering happens to us as though it were strange. And of course, this, pe- this story features Peter himself. I'm, I'm shocked at how many times going through this series in First Peter, the things he says, and then you, you hold those in comparison to, so, to the, some of the things that he's doing in the Gospels, and you can tell in some ways, even though he's not saying it outright, that he's almost like imagining young Peter, right? He's like, don't make that mistake. That is actually recorded. Go and read it. <laughs> like, you can read about my, my mess up here. So let's read about one of his mess-ups here. In Matthew 16, after Jesus is harassed by the Pharisees, Jesus foretells his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so, you know, he's telling the disciples about what's going to happen. And Peter says this in verse 22. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You guys heard that before? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In verse 23, this is how Jesus responds. He says, of course, Peter, I've forgotten my place in this kingdom. Thanks, man. Is that what he says? Is that what happens? This is what Jesus says to him, really. He says, get behind me, Satan. The complete opposite. You know, we saw today that Jesus, who is a wonderful friend, he speaks the truth in kindness. This is one of those instances where it's not so kind. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever been called the devil. Personally, it's not, a, it's not fun to be called Satan, but he wasn't speaking to Peter. He was speaking to Satan himself. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so it's remarkable to think about Peter, who was one of the 12, one of Jesus's closest, and for a moment, he believed that being a part of Jesus's kingdom meant that we don't suffer, right? Jesus is like, I must suffer, and Peter says, no, And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. And so in that instance, Jesus spots the lie that's there, that's built into our hearts. We balk at suffering. And that makes sense, right? Nobody likes suffering. Nobody comes out and says, yeah, you know, I actually really enjoy it. Like, that's not really a thing that's common to human beings. We all balk at it. And so when I say being a Christian means we are exempt from from suffering as a lie, we would say mentally that we agree with that. But in our hearts... We all wish that we were exempt, right? We all wish that maybe I'm the one who it'll skip over this time. Maybe in my life, I'll be the one to not have to deal with suffering. The truth is this. God does not threaten us with suffering, but he promises us suffering. We treat suffering as though it were a threat. Like when your dad says, if you don't come home by 10 o'clock, there's going to be consequences, right? We think about suffering like that. But suffering is not a threat. Suffering is a promise that he gives to us. And he gives it to us so that we can be refined. While many of us despair at our sins being revealed, church, I promise you that when we suffer poorly, it is not being wasted by God. It is actually his design, right? 
like a skilled goldsmith refining the gold by placing it under fire. When he sees the impurities that emerges from the gold, he wisely works with the fire to burn off the impurity that lies within the gold. That is his aim. That is his impetus. It's what he's doing, right? The trial comes into our life and it reveals our weakness. And I think most of us would have a little bit of shame to say we, we suffer poorly. Who would say that they suffer poorly, right? Like, I'm not really good at it. So it's not a secret. We all suck at it, right? Just, imp- this is it. Like, don't, we can't lie or hide from this truth. We are not good at suffering. But if we were good at suffering, it would mean that there was no impurities to reveal, right? It's the process of our impurities being revealed that makes us not enjoy it. But it is the very reason they exist. That's why he uses the word a fiery trial, which is a callback to 1 Peter 1, where he talks about the fire that he puts us under. And remember, do you remember what he produces in us? James says he produces steadfastness in us. But what does Peter say? It produces us in us genuine what? Genuine faith. It produces in us genuine faith. And so while you may be discouraged about how well you suffer, God is truly faithful to not waste our suffering. So don't be surprised by it. Amen? I don't think we can suffer well. I don't think I can stand here and say, guys, you must suffer well. And here is the standard that you must live up to 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 suffer well. I think we will largely suffer poorly as people as our impurities are drawn to the surface and then burned off regularly. We're not going to suffer well as a practice. But let's not be surprised by it right? That's what Peter's saying here. Do not be surprised as though something strange were happening. It's not strange. So that's the first lie. The second lie is that Christ's sufferings only means persecution. And he says this in verses 13 and 14. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. So I'll start off by saying this. A great deal of the verses in the New Testament that discuss suffering addresses it under the context of persecution. Just right out of the gate. I don't think you can twist those verses to say they're not talking about persecution. Oftentimes, they are. It's not debatable. Jesus in John 15, 18 is very clear, and he says... If the world hates you, you know, know that it hated me before you. There's no two ways about it. We will be insulted for the name of Christ. Peter says here that we ought to react to our suffering by rejoicing and by being glad and by realizing we are blessed to suffer in a way that is similar to Jesus. Amen to the hundredth power, right? James chapter 1 verse 2 says it similarly. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We know this, and we're bad at it, right? <laughs> Not too many people I know can say, yes, I am suffering. This is party, right? It's not really common to us. But where we get tripped up is when we read the words, share in Christ's sufferings. Peter does go on in verse 14 to talk about persecution, being insulted for the name of Christ. It is important that we do understand what Christ's sufferings really mean. They definitely mean persecution, and that is one form of suffering. But what else do they mean? I want to put to you guys two additional things that I would add into 
the term Christ's sufferings. You know, we hear Christ's sufferings, we think about the cross, but I would debate that there's more. And so there's a slide for this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says this about Jesus. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Who's ever read this verse before? Who's ever seen this one? Jesus, it says here in, in Hebrews that part of Jesus' suffering was not only what happened on the cross. It wasn't only when he was beaten and flogged and crucified. But this points to the fact that this happened all throughout his life when he was tempted. Temptation is suffering. Who's ever heard that before? Temptation is suffering. Not giving in to temptation, that is not suffering. But to be a person in this world who decides and fights to, to pursue holiness is a form of suffering. The reason why Jesus allowed himself to be tempted, it says in that verse, is so that he could identify with us as his creatures and to offer us help in our time of need. And other parts of the Bible, I believe in 1 Corinthians, Paul also brings that up. So that's one additional element to suffering. And if you want to talk about that after, maybe as we hang out after, if you want to start up a debate about what it looks like for temptation to be suffering, we can unpack that. But even wider than temptation is what Paul says in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 11, and especially the Romans 8 passage, which I discovered this week in a new light, really, really changed how I viewed suffering and confirmed a lot of things that I, I was really struggling with. And so in, in Romans 8, he says that we are truly heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, right? And that kind of matches some of the language that Peter uses, right? We suffer. If you rejoice with him in your suffering, then you can rejoice when he comes back, right? That's true. But then he goes on to talk about the sufferings of this present time that I think add more to the picture than simply just persecution. And by the way, in no way, shape, or form am I trying to diminish persecution. I'm just trying to offer a more wide definition of what suffering means. And so Romans 8, verses 20 to 22, there's a slide for that, says this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What we learn from this is that creation is soaked in sin, absolutely immersed by in, in it and marked by it and controlled by it. Together, Paul says that creation is in the pains of childbirth, all of creation. We're talking about nature. And when we look at nature, we think about things like famine and pestilence, forest fires and tornadoes and earthquakes and mudslides and droughts. Creation itself is suffering and is yearning for freedom from the bondage of sin. Creation itself is groaning. Creation itself cannot wait for King Jesus to return, to redeem it. Look at what else it says in verse 23. It's not just nature that this applies to. There's a slide for that. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is showing us that we as well are groaning just like creation because we want sweet relief from this life. Amen? We want relief. We are in pain. Things like sickness and disease and broken relationships, corruption, crime, human trafficking, terrorism. We are sick of it. Amen? We are sick of it. That's why Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? That's almost like our national anthem, right? Who will save us? Who will save us from this body of death? The answer is Jesus, of course. But the groaning that we experience as we have to face what's in the world and what's in our hearts and what's in other people's hearts is a lot. Paul goes on to remind us that no form of suffering will drive a wedge between us and God. There's a slide. Romans 8.35 says, who shall separate us from the love of God? Or the love of Christ, sorry. You've heard that first part. But if you go into the second part, look at how Paul describes what suffering looks like. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Right? You see how Paul is, has a wide view of what suffering is. It's not just persecution, which is on the list if you notice, right? It's on the list, which is not to diminish it by any means, but he talks about tribulation and distress, and famine, and nakedness, and danger, and sword. If you flip over to 2 Corinthians 11, he gives you even more details about what that looks like. Can you guys read that? It's a little bit small if you're in the back row. Paul says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And so we stop there and we say, look, that's persecution, Right? Then he goes on. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Notice the wide variety that Paul is listing here. And this is really my point. To live as a Christian in this world and to share in the sufferings of Christ means to live as a Christian in a world that is filled and saturated with so much sin and brokenness. Everywhere we turn, there is sin around us and in us and in other people. It's even in nature. I'm talking about the danger of the city right? The danger from rivers. I don't even know what that means, right? Like crossing a river. I don't, I don't know what he's talking about there. But to share in the sufferings of Christ means to pursue and rely on Christ in the midst of a sin-saturated world. It means to cling to him as our only hope. We experience sin from other people in the form of persecution, like the apostles and Jesus who are arrested and flogged, like Paul says, from his own people, from Gentiles and robbers, we experience disasters as we move through this world. Shipwrecks. We can't really relate to that, but car crashes. We persevere through threats of nature, danger from the wilderness and sea, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, coldness, exposure. Who can relate to these things? Right? Some of you are cold right now. Right? Then there's the danger of false brothers, wolves in the church, False teaching, 
The anxiety of watching fellow believers fall away from Christ or live lives of unrepentant sin or people who embrace heretical teachings. These are all forms of suffering. To stand by and watch your brother or sister shipwreck their, their faith in Christ. Right? It's awful. Do I have to continue? Life is hard, church. And we need to get away from this idea that persecution is the only legit form of suffering. But in Christ, no matter what we are going through, we share in the sufferings of Christ who also experienced those things himself. And like Hebrews says so clearly, the reason he did it was so that he could identify with us and know us to become our sympathetic high priest. And so this makes the gospel about so much more than just Jesus' death. This doesn't diminish Jesus' death, but shows us that his, his ministry started far earlier in his life. The gospel is not just about his death and resurrection. The gospel is about his entire life. It is about Jesus' perfect life. Yes, it culminated in his brutal death and his powerful resurrection, but his entire life was a ministry to us. And so to, to diminish Jesus' life down to the last couple of days of his life, I think is to do injustice to his ministry. His ministry was to become a man and to identify with us in every way and to die in our place. And so church, if you are going through things, I just want you to know Jesus is not sympathetic just to persecution. He is sympathetic to all of what it means to be a human being. Your grief, your financial struggles, your cancer, your wayward children, your insecure housing situation. And one day, he will bring restoration to everything. Amen? Good. That was probably the longest point in there, so I won't. the rest won't be as long. But lie number three is that everything is persecution. And verses 15 and 16 says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. And so this is not foreign. Peter has already said similar things twice in 1 Peter. He says in chapter 2, verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? And he also said in Chapter 3, verse 17. For it is, better, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Right? He's laid this out. Like I said, persecution is real. Every day around the world, our brothers and sisters lose their lives and families for the sake of Christ. Here we face, in North America, we definitely face less dangerous situations, but they can be painful too. As it says in 1 Peter 4, verse 4, you can experience persecution without even preaching the gospel. He said, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. We don't even have to do anything to be persecuted. You can literally just go about your day and refuse to not join in in sin and then be maligned for it, right? To us who refuse to give in to the ways of the culture and the world, he says to us this morning, do not be ashamed. Glorify God in this title of Christian. Glorify God in this title as a Christian, as a child of God. It is a glorious and a proud thing to call yourself a Christian in this world. Amen? Don't ever be ashamed of it. And yet some of us think that in order to be a Christian, we need to go around looking for trouble. And so in the core years of my life as a Christian, when I was very early in my discipleship, I grew up in very strong apologetic circles. You guys know what apologetics is? 
it's the defense of the faith. And so you would get into things like world religions and, and you learn how to dialogue with people of other faiths. And these things were in person, they were online. I personally had some very good examples. Uh, my best friend, Sumer, one of my best friends, he, he is uh, an example to me as a man who is winsome and kind in how he talks to people. And other people you may know, Tony Costa, if you guys remember him, we did an event with him. He's an example as well of an upright and a winsome man who has a genuine heart to, to legitimately give people a reason for the hope they have in Christ. So I had a good examples. Yet in those days, I, I, I rubbed shoulders oftentimes with certain people who found so much pleasure in going around starting fights. Whether it was on campus, at whatever school we were at, or it was on street corners or Facebook groups, these people would go around starting fights, starting debates. They would pick on people and their behaviors. They would go to other events that weren't Christian and they'd start fights. These men in the name of Christ, they would often invoke the image of Jesus flipping tables, right? And they would go around instigating fights with a strong desire to win and defeat their opponents. They wanted to open a, a can of you-know-what on whatever poor soul they decided to cross their paths that day, right? We also know people who do this type of thing, not just with apologetics, but with every conspiracy known to man. These people instigate, and when people push back, they walk away like they were persecuted for their faith. Persecution is real, church. But let me just say this very openly. Being a jerk to people because Jesus was tough with his opponents and then getting pushed back is not persecution. It's not persecution. That is called being a jerk and then dealing with the consequences of it. If you are picking fights with people and then saying, oh, look, they're hating me for my faith. This is what Peter's talking about. You get arrested for stealing or for meddling, or for murdering someone. You can't say, ah, oh, they're picking on me. No, that is the consequence of your actions. And so church, the last thing I'll say there is if, if we go around calling everything persecution, we spit in the face of those who are actually being persecuted. Peter in these verses is saying, listen, it is better to suffer for doing good than breaking the law. It is a lie to call everything persecution. That's the third lie. Lie number four is that suffering is futile and random. And verses 17 to 19 touch on this. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. One of my favorite promises in the Christian walk is that God has promised us that he will sanctify us. While not all suffering is a direct result of our sin, like some teach in the prosperity gospel movement, God uses all of our suffering to test our spirits and to purify us. I'll say this, I know for a fact that I suffer poorly, and many of you raised your hands and agreed with me, and often my sin is revealed and I am discouraged. But when I read verses like this, I am reminded that my Heavenly Father loves me and will finish the good work that He started in me. It is painful to have our sin revealed to us. And it should be painful to have to face the fact that we are sometimes prideful, that we are sometimes lustful and selfish and greedy. 
It should be heart-wrenching to us. We should be convicted and broken over the things that we see in our heart, the things that come out of us when we are put under the gun. And the truth of the scriptures is that God opposes the prideful. It's true. Yet I always love the second half of that truth, which is that God gives grace to the what? To the humble. This is what Peter is teaching here. God is judging the household of God. That is us. Like the skilled goldsmith I mentioned earlier who uses the fire. He is using the fire of trials to judge us and make us pure. And so amen to that. Our suffering is not futile. It is not useful. It is purposeful. And we live under a, 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 a skilled craftsman who wastes not a single iota of our suffering. He uses every single part of it to surgically remove the sin that kills us. But the second half of this passage should break our hearts. It says here, for those who don't know Jesus, there's something different. And we have to ask ourselves this morning, what does their suffering mean? As Christians, we can say that our suffering is for profit. But for those who don't know Jesus, Peter offers, no offers us nothing but a question. He says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so I invite anyone in our midst this morning who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior to consider your suffering. Yes, all human beings will suffer, but I ask you this question. What is your suffering for? In Christ, your suffering is not futile and it means something. In Christ, your suffering will be used to make you holy. And so for that reason, instead of suffering in futility... I encourage you this morning to turn from your sins, to turn from your futility, to turn to Jesus and to ask him to save you this very morning. Amen? The text also shows us that suffering is not random. The Bible also teaches us that God's people suffer according to God's will. This means that what we go through, how we go through it, when we go through it, how long we go through it for, and what sin is revealed is part of his will. Every aspect of our suffering is under God's sovereign hand, and he is, like I said before, purposeful. And so I think most of us would acknowledge that and agree with that, but the question I have for you, and this is where we, where we trip and where we stumble, the question I have for you and I have for myself is, will you entrust your soul to him? Will you entrust your soul to him? You might say, why should I do that, Jermaine? And Peter answers you, because he knows you're going to ask, and he says, because he's your faithful creator. The fact of the matter is that God is faithful, and when I say that God has not wasted a single iota of any of our sufferings, I mean this with all sincerity. Waste is a human thing, right? We waste words, we waste time, we waste money, we waste opportunities, we waste food, we waste our relationships. We are literally known for producing waste materials. But God, God does not waste. He is faithful to use every single circumstance to our advantage. And so church, I ask you again this morning, will you entrust your soul to him? Will you entrust your soul to your faithful creator? Will you resist the lie that Satan whispers in your ear when you suffer? When he says things to you like, this is completely random, or God is punishing you, or God hates you, or God has forgotten about you, or God is messing this one up, or God can't help you. All of those are twists on the same lie, and it paints God as this, this, this being who is watching us suffer and can't do anything about it. 
or he's causing it because he hates us, or he wants to help, but I don't have time, or I have time, but I'm just not inclined, or I'm inclined, but I don't know what I'm doing, right? These are all pictures of an impotent God who can't do anything to help us, or best case scenario, just doesn't care or hates our guts, right? And these are not pictures of who God is. The scriptures paint Jesus Christ as our faithful creator. And so church, will you entrust your soul to him, right? Will you entrust your soul to him? Which brings us to our last lie, which is lie number five. And it says this, I am of no use to God while I'm suffering. The twin of this lie, just to change the words, you go to the next slide is I'm going through a lot now, so I am exempt from helping others. Who's felt this before? You see the needs of your brothers and sisters, and you're like, oh, no, man. Didn't sleep last night. I'm broke. I'm going through it. I can't really help. Get somebody who's in a, in a good place or a better place, or somebody else will do it. Verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good while doing good. God's will for us as we suffer is not for us to roll up in a ball and wait for the end, even though I think many of us can say that we have felt that way, right? Who's felt that they want to roll up in a ball and just wait. To suffer incorrectly would be to sit there and to fold inwardly and to trap yourself in a cycle of feeling bad for yourself and to be inward facing. Who can relate to that? You get so caught up and you fall into the trap of pity and that trap only gets deeper and wider the longer you sit in it. But the antidote to this trap is to understand that while we are grieving and feeling all of the feelings, all of the feelings of our suffering, which is fine, we are still called to be others-minded. And so this week, this is why I know this passage is true this is why I, I, I know this is true, is because I experienced you guys living this way this week. I know for a fact that many of you are going through your own situations. I know that there's work issues and relational issues, and a lot of you are tired and sick, or you're sick and tired, whatever order you want to put it in. You guys are going through it. And yet, like clockwork, every single day, I would get a ring at the doorbell and there would be somebody holding a box or a crock pot or a bowl or some container of food for us, even in the midst of your own situations. And so if you guys disobeyed this command this week to do good while you suffer, we would have gone hungry this week. And so thank you to everyone who served us, even in the midst of your own stuff. I know Leah is grateful and sends all of her love this morning. She's at home alone with Silas for the first time in a while and is just enjoying that time by herself. Paul reminds us that our suffering is not just between us and God, but ought to involve others too. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-4 to says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul and his grammar is tough. Let me see how I can break this down. The cycle is this. This is the cycle that we go through. We experience trials and we suffer. 
number one. Number two, we are refined by God. You know, sometimes that involves him convicting us. Sometimes that involves him just breaking our selfishness and, 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 and taking us out of ourselves. Number three, we are comforted by God when we notice his provision for us. And usually this is where it ends for us. But we need to remember step four, the missing cog, which makes our suffering even more valuable. And that cog is that we need to turn around and bend that comfort out to take the comfort that God gives to us and to give it to other people. Church, you guys are going through stuff and one of the reasons that you are going through stuff in your life is so that you can help others who are going through stuff. Comfort is not owned by you alone. The comfort that he gives to you in your suffering is for all of us. He gives it to you so that you would share it. Just like our, uh, the sermon last week on spiritual gifts. You always want to know, what's my spiritual gift? It's not yours. That's the issue. You see, what's my spiritual gift? It's not your gift. It is given by the Spirit for other people. You just happen to be in the middle of it. Right? You just happen to be the, the, the middleman between the one who gives the gift and the one who receives the benefits of the gift. And it's the same in this situation. He gives the comfort. We are the middle people in between, and we bend that comfort out to other people. We share the comfort that he gives to us. And so, church, I'll say this. If you have been comforted by God in any, any way, whether it's recent or it came from some earlier time in your life when you could remember God's faithfulness and his goodness to you, it is your responsibility to do good and comfort others who are suffering. It is your responsibility to bend that comfort out to other people. And this is what Paul meant in Galatians when he said to bear one another's burdens. Yes, it can involve, you know, doing good can involve a lot of things, but that's just one thing I wanted to touch on this morning. Your comfort is not your own. It's not just for you. And maybe one of the reasons why some of us are not experiencing that comfort is because some of us are hogging it for ourselves. It's not yours, all right? You have to give it up. Share it. And I promise you that as you share the comfort that Christ has given you, in some weird way, the comfort that he has given you will grow. You will be even more comforted as you see your brothers and sisters in Christ experience that comfort. And so to close this morning, we ought to ask ourselves the question, how do we suffer well? And just remember that none of these things means that you don't, that your sin is not revealed. That's not going to be on the list. I'm not going to put on the list, don't sin. It's literally his design for your sin to come out so that he can get it. It's a trap, right? It's a trap. Five things. How do we suffer well? We need to remember that suffering is not strange. That's the first way we suffer well. The second thing is we walk with Jesus in this sin-saturated world, whether it is through persecution or death or illness, nature, I spelled or wrong, I'm sorry. Illness, nature, death, persecution, financial stuff, heart disease, cancer, whatever you're going through, walk with Jesus. That doesn't mean there's no suffering. It just means that you're not alone, right? Number three, we hold our heads high when we are persecuted, but we don't go looking for it as well, right? You are not more Christian if you go out looking for persecution and you're not less Christian if you're not persecuted. I think that's one of the things that I remember struggling with early in my walk. Well, I'm not persecuted. Does that mean I'm not Christian? 
Who's ever felt that way? Like, my life is really comfortable. Maybe I'm, like, not being abrasive and angry enough. I need to go start some fights so I can get persecuted. It's not it. Stop it. Number four, remember that God is sovereign over our suffering. It is not futile. It's not useless. It's not random. It's not out of his sight. It's not out of his control. It's not out of his care. And number five is to persevere and do good while you're suffering. Share your comfort, right? I'll let you guys take a picture of that because I know you guys like to do that sometimes. I think this is the only way that we can suffer. Let me get out of the way. You don't want my face in that. That's how we suffer well. We don't, you're not going to hear from me this morning. The way you suffer well is you don't, you don't sin. You don't whine. You don't complain. You don't struggle. No, you're going to struggle. That's a promise. It's going to hurt. That's a promise. But don't consider it strange when it's happening. Just let it happen. Turn to God. Turn to others. And when he's comforted you, you turn and you comfort one another. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your example of suffering. You didn't only perish on the cross, but you lived a life full of suffering. You were tempted and you did not sin. You walked this earth like we do. You experienced so much in this world. And for that, God, we thank you because you gave your son and you sent him into this world. As we head into Christmas, we think about that. We think about the sufferings of Christ as he led a human life and as he struggled with things like hunger and thirst and famine and persecution and sword and dangers of all sorts. And as we think about you, Jesus, I pray that we would be comforted and grateful because it says in your word that you went through all of those things so that you could help us. And so help us as we suffer. Continue to burn off the impurities that are revealed through our suffering. And God, I pray that our Suffering would never be wasted. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.